0: Hey everyone, it's Stefan Angelini from Investor here. Thanks again for joining me. We've got a really, really, really great conversation today. We're talking about investing overseas or investing into international stocks. And we're actually talking to one of the part portfolio managers of Australia's largest funds, Magellan. They manage about $90 billion of assets at the moment. Um, We're talking to Chris, Chris Weldon. He runs the high conviction fund at Magellan. They focus on buying the best names in the world at a cheap price to have great growth potential. And this is essentially what it is. If you're thinking about investing into international stocks, you want to find the companies that are trading at a cheaper price to where they normally sit, but have huge growth potential. The type of investor it's for? Well, it's for the long-term investor, of course, just like investing into any, any other Australian share. But what you have to consider is you have to consider macroeconomic factors, such as currency changes when you get into investing overseas. So there's some really great points of content here Enjoy the episode, but before we get into it, I want to remind you one thing, is that this is considered as general information only. It's not considered personal advice or financial advice, so if you've got any questions about how it adapts to your personal situation, please reach out to your own financial planner. Other than that, if you had any questions for me, please email at investortypes at gmail.com. Other than that, let's get into it. G'day, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Investor Types. We're talking about investing into international businesses today, which is a very exciting topic and things that a lot of people are thinking of doing or want to do. Think about investing into companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, um, all these companies that you see everywhere. Um, we're talking with an expert in this field today. We're talking with uh, Chris Weldon from Magellan. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on with us, mate. I really appreciate you being here, giving up the time. Um, so you wore awesome. your finest suit today. Fantastic. <laughs> <Well done. laughs> Living in the days of isolation, we can wear whatever we want. Yep. <laughs> now if you don't know who Magellan is, or um, well, plain and simple, you don't watch enough cricket. Magellan's one of the biggest sponsors of the the Australian Test. They, they sponsored the Australian Test last few years. Uh,
1: we, we did have a sponsorship agreement for the Ashes a few summers ago, um, but uh, the, the ball tampering uh, issue uh, <laughs> resulted in that uh, that contract. Um, Not, something be
0: asso- All right. Not something you want to be associated with, I guess. Ball tampering inside of trading. Don't associate <laughs> it too. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So um, Magellan. Magellan, one of the best known investment managers in Australia from an international perspective and why I love what you do. So Magellan run a few different strategies. Um, they run the broader strategy run by Hamish Douglas and then you work alongside Hamish Douglas in the, um, the more conviction strategy focusing on say eight to 12 really core companies. And what that's why I I really wanted to get you on because you look for the best of the best. So when you look to invest overseas, um, who are some of the businesses that you do invest into?
1: Yeah, that's um, it's a good question, Stephen. It's it's right. We call it internally um, the best ideas fund. So we do get to be very patient and very disciplined Mm -hmm. around um, setting very high hurdles. Effectively, you know, we want the highest quality businesses and the most undervalued high quality businesses. with you know very attractive long-term growth tailwinds all those sort of things behind them so in the portfolio at the moment with those things in mind we've got positions in a couple of enterprise software companies like microsoft and sap they will really benefit from cloud computing in the years and hopefully decades to come uh we've got a couple of chinese digital um platforms alibaba and tencent who really play across the digital ecosystem in, in china we've got two of the leading. US digital platforms, uh, Alphabet and Facebook, Um, and the audience will be very familiar with those businesses. We've also got Visa, uh, which really benefits from this ongoing sustained transition from cash Mm. and check-based payments around the world to card-based payments and online payments and tap-to-go payments and those sort of things. Um, And then we've also got a position in uh, Estee Lauder as well, which, um, uh, similar to our investment in Starbucks, so Estee Lauder and Starbucks, one of the key growth engines for those businesses in the decades to come will be the growth in the consumption sector within china and particularly towards the sort of mass affluent and affluent part of the um, consumption pyramid in, in the years and decades to come so as it becomes more middle class or the middle class saying
0: china becomes richer they spend more money on coffee which we already spend so a, a too much money on in australia
1: hopefully <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there should be more disposable income in China and that will benefit Alibaba's businesses, Tencent's businesses, uh, but also Estee Lauder and Starbucks business in China as well.
0: Yeah, I can see there's a big tech presence there and specifically that the visa play and the movement to online payments. I guess I'm still trying to convince my grandfather that cash is gone. Cash is not king anymore. Um, And he still tries to go to his local supermarket and pay cash and they don't accept it. And then he, he gets angry. I'm like, well, maybe COVID will,
1: you know, this sort of environment, cash, you know, people don't want to be sort of handling or accepting cash too much at the moment. So maybe this is an accelerant in his change in behavior. And we are seeing that around the world. People, um, you know, that the the card companies talk about this war on cash. Uh, That's sort of been their structural growth um, channel for, for a long, long time now. And of course, no one wants to handle cash at the moment or accept cash. So it's just a further accelerant to the trends that were already in place. Yep. Um, but it provides a lot of conviction around the long-term uh, addressable opportunity that those businesses have. Yep.
0: So, in order to get the the internally best best funds or best ideas, how do you find them? What do you look for?
1: Well, you kind of we've got a funnel, I guess. We're right at the top of the funnel is we've got an investment committee uh, at Magellan that's approved, you know, a couple of hundred wonderful businesses, mm-hmm. super high quality businesses. And we're thinking about sustainable, long-term, competitive positions of those businesses. And so, effectively, that's our shopping list. There's sort of 200, roughly, businesses that have been approved by our investment committee as meeting our quality hurdles. And then, mentioned earlier, uh, the Global Fund, um, Hamish Douglas's Global Fund, tends to run at around 25 positions. So, it's already quite a concentrated portfolio. And then... Hamish and I co-manage the High Conviction Fund, which is just further down the funnel. It's the 8 to 12 best ideas. So we've got an analyst team, an investment team at Magellan of about 30 people. Um, Guys and girls, wonderful analysts, like super bright, incredible, uh, incredible analysts. And they are doing work on those couple of hundred businesses that we cover. And then we just get to patiently wait. Markets give us opportunities from time to time um, and we'll look to invest in those really high-quality businesses in that universe, but we'll invest in them in the portfolios when we find them available at a really attractive valuation. Yep. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the way the funnel works. Um, the the high-conviction strategy can sort of get into the mid-cap space, so it might look a little bit different from Global Fund from mm-hmm. time to time because we've just... Um, you can open up the mid-cap universe for mid-cap, but uh, for high conviction rather, but, but that doesn't work for Global Fund. Um, but, but by and large, they're very similar portfolios. Just in high conviction, you've got outsized exposure to the very best ideas that we can find at Magellan.
0: So you spoke before about when they come to a good valuation. So you know who the companies are that you want to buy, but they need to come to a good value, which means a good price. Um, yeah. And we, you would have seen great valuations come up recently. But when we talk about, there's always this argument between value and growth. Am I looking for a company at a good valuation, or do I want a company that's going to grow a lot? Um, what do you what do you
1: consider to be more important out of those two? Um, I wouldn't could contrast it. I wouldn't suggest it's an or. I'd suggest it's an and. You know, we want value and growth. Yeah. Um, yep. That's sort of really the the way we think about it. Um, and we honestly, the way we think, all um, you know. Ben Ben, uh, Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor, um, all all intelligent investing is value investing at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Just within that broad church of value investing, we want to also invest in those undervalued businesses that that do have the tailwinds behind them, sort of structural growth tailwinds that will allow for that growth and that compounding um, of those businesses over time because that's what we want to deliver to our clients is absolute returns. You know, we don't care much about beating markets. Um, we want to protect clients' capital in falling markets. But over time, what we really want to do is provide that compounding journey uh, for, for our clients. And that means we need to own businesses at the end of the day that will also grow their earnings and their cash flows and improve their economics. Um, but we don't want to pay too much for those either. Because <laughs> even for the wonderful businesses, uh, you can't pay too much. So we think of growth and value as being very important. Awesome. And
0: in your portfolio, look—you have got some amazing names that everyone recognises. You know, you can't—you can't look through your portfolio and go, "Look, oh, I don't know who that is." And when it comes to valuing these businesses, what if you could say, when you're valuing an international business, what's the one most important
1: factor you look for? I don't think it's any different from valuing a domestic business, and it's no different, frankly, in our mind, from valuing a business or a property um, yeah. or any other asset. You know, we're trying to judge conservatively. And with a sort of range of outcomes in mind, we're just trying to judge the future cash flows of that business or any other asset over its lifetime and discount those cash flows back to a present value today and compare that conservative estimate of fair value to where the share price is. And that's where you get hopefully that margin of safety. Values up here, prices down here, and you've got that margin of safety in between. So we know we're going to get it wrong. You know, but yeah. we, we don't have perfect foresight. And even in these wonderful businesses, things change. Um, so we want to insist always on having a very wide margin of safety and markets give us that opportunity from time to time. You mentioned, you know, pretty recently in March markets were uh, moving around quite a bit um, and they do that from time to time. And we, we love to use that as an opportunity to uh, add, invest, uh, find more of these wonderful businesses at great valuations. Yeah.
0: Awesome. And I, I guess that's what most people don't take into consideration that sometimes you do get it wrong or it takes time for you to get it right doesn't always happen straight away because markets are just tricky things volatility happens one of the questions i've been asked recently in regards to specific businesses um i got asked something the other day and i want to get your opinion on it if you could choose one of these two companies tesla or facebook who would you choose out of them and why
1: that's a that's (laughs) it sounds like a loaded question but it's the reason i I smirk is because i often use those two businesses as an example in some of the presentations i give yeah i promise we rehearse this ahead of time but <laughs> like it because it really illustrates the, the the point around quality i would argue both of those businesses arguably have long-term growth tailwinds behind them Yeah, tests will benefit from the growth in electric vehicles over time yep. um, facebook's benefiting from the growth in digital advertising as well as the other parts of facebook you know shops and uh, messaging and um video and all the things that that uh Uh, Facebook's getting into as well so you've got two businesses in growing industries then we step back and try and judge the quality of those two businesses because what we want to try and figure out is yes they're growing industries but who are going to be the winners who can we have conviction will be the winners of these in in these industries five years from now and ten years from now yeah and it seems to us that with Tesla even though it's in a it's in a growing industry the auto manufacturing space is just an inherently competitive industry. And Tesla has some wonderful advantages. You know, they're their first mover, they've got a good brand. But at the end of the day, they're an auto manufacturer. And they're competing with other very capable, very well-resourced, mm-hmm. global auto manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it's harder for us to see in five years and ten years, even though there will be more electric vehicles sold around the world, it's harder for us to judge whether... Tesla will account for 5%, 15%, 50% or all of those electric vehicles sold around the world. Whereas social networks and Facebook in particular, just given the network effects and the switching costs and all the the quality associated with a business like Facebook, um, five years from now, 10 years from now, I think you can have a high degree of conviction that the dominant social network in most Western countries will still be Facebook or at least the apps owned by Facebook, including Facebook itself, but also Instagram and WhatsApp and Messenger, those will likely remain the dominant um, social networking messaging apps in, in most Western uh, countries five years from now and 10 years from now. So it just it leads both are very good businesses today, both in, in, in attractive industries. But I think five years from now, 10 years from now, I think you have a high degree of conviction that Dominant uh, Facebook will remain the dominant social networking business, and just less conviction that Tesla will remain the dominant manufacturer of EVs in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Competition, competition is so important. Now, if you've got competitors that can come in and and do exactly what you're doing at a cheaper price and offer a cheaper product, brand brand begins to diminish then, or you don't have as much
1: demand. Well, that is, that is the nature of capitalism, and it is incumbent on us always to stress test the thinking around the long-term quality of our businesses, because it's true that at some point in the future, we can't sort of really foresee it right here today, but at some point in the future, great businesses like Facebook, like Alphabet, like Amazon, like Microsoft, they also will likely be disrupted. It's its just the nature of capitalism. It, has, it happens time and time again. You know, if we were having this conversation Two decades ago, we would have argued some of the strongest businesses on the planet were newspapers. Mm -hmm. And and they genuinely were at that point in time. But look at what has happened to that industry. They get displaced. They get disrupted. Capitalism, competition, to your point, just continues to attack those wonderful businesses. And we know um, the same thing is happening with the wonderful businesses we love today. It's incumbent on us to retest that, that thinking around quality. It's also incumbent on the people running those businesses to keep reinventing them to keep pivoting, to keep uh, opening up um, new sources of growth in the future and, and sort of really maintaining that moat around the business. Yeah. So the amount that you guys look into, it goes pretty in-depth. And there's been a lot of conversation
0: recently around, why, why, would I not, why wouldn't I just buy an index fund or an international index fund as opposed to trying to invest on my own and buy shares on my own or buy shares or use managed funds who who specialize in buying the right businesses? Um, what I'm trying to get at here, Chris, is like you guys, you don't even bench yourself. You don't even target an outperformance of a specific index. So why do you prefer to invest into individual assets as opposed to buying an index?
1: I think it goes back to the point I made earlier around having you know a very, very capable investment team. Mm. Um, and we can spend all day, every day sifting through the thousands of investable securities are out there many of which end up in those global international indices um but we just get to limit our universe to super high quality companies and then limit our portfolios to those wonderful businesses at attractive valuations Mm -hmm. in an index you can own everything the high quality stuff and the low quality stuff and everything in between as well as the overvalued stuff and the undervalued stuff and everything in between and look that's for for a buy and hold long-term investor who wants international diversification at a low cost an index certainly plays a role mm-hmm. and that, that's been proven and, and unfortunately the reality is for our industry the active management industry most of us haven't earned our fees over time and so on an after fee basis passive index investing um, there's a very strong case for it um, hopefully you know folks like ourselves by virtue of the wonderful investment team we have by virtue of the process we have, the portfolio construction tools that we have, um, and hopefully some good decision-making from time to time. Um, on an after basis, hopefully, we can do a little better than the index. But like you mentioned, we're not actually targeting that. What we want to do is deliver, um, you know, attractive absolute returns uh, to investors going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's where it's incumbent on financial advisors such as myself to... To pick to choose the right managers that we believe have long-term conviction, good good resources within the company to continually outperform, if we are going to use um, managed funds in the portfolio at all, um, because you're right, there's so many out there that haven't proved their worth, or haven't 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 got what their fees are getting paid for, um, which is unfortunate, well, you, but it's the way the beast where
1: the beast is. It is, and you can tie it directly back to your prior question around competition, the active management. Industry. has just become so much more competitive in recent decades that it's harder, on Mm -hmm. average, to outperform. Yep,
0: and you've got active managers that play in the international space, active managers that play in the property space, the Australian equity space. Uh, You guys specialise in, or what you manage anyway, in international companies. I know you've got an infrastructure fund as well, um, but into international companies. Um, What do you see is, when when you compare Australian companies versus international companies, so... NABs versus uh, an overseas company like a Facebook. What do you see as the main difference between Australian companies and international companies? A lot of people that I talk to, it's mainly around the income that's paid from Australian companies because they pay out a lot of their profits. International companies are a little bit different. They tend to keep the, pro- keep the cash and reinvest it back into the business. What, what is the main difference between Australian businesses and overseas?
1: That, that might be part of it. Um, but that might also be sort of too broad a, a point uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can agree because I just don't know the data. You know, we cover those couple of hundred companies and we don't spend much time looking at the rest of the world. So, yeah, yeah, fair affect, enough. Um, Australia versus uh, everything else out there. I'd say the biggest difference we find from investing in Australia to investing outside of Australia is just recognizing that Australia is a wonderful company. I love Australia, but it's quite a narrow economy and it's an even narrower share market you know, there's not a lot of sector diversity. Um, It's, uh, you know, we've all seen the statistics around the top 20 and the top 50 ASX. They're all skewed to a couple of sectors. Um, As you step outside of Australia and start investing internationally, you just get exposure to many, many more different industries, of course, many more regions. Um, And there are you know, we are not thematic investors. As I mentioned, we just love finding these wonderful businesses that have tailwinds behind them instead of facing headwinds in front of them. Um, we just it, it seems to us it is those uh, long-term tailwinds are more prevalent outside Australia than inside Australia. You know, it is true that we have businesses here that play to, you know, the growth in Chinese consumption. We have businesses that play to, you know, the growth in digital payments and things like that. But if we look outside Australia, um, we just find more of those wonderful businesses that really benefit from a, a vast variety of those different long-term growth tailwinds. And there might be fewer of those opportunities here in Australia.
0: Yep, yep. no, fair enough. People like investing to Australia because a lot of the times they know the names they're investing in. But now if you go look overseas, you still find names that you know and names that you can believe in. But the one thing that's that, a lot of people don't really take into consideration when they go to invest overseas is how the currency changes or exchange rate plays into returns um yeah. so for instance we call this normally taking a hedge and unhedged exposure hedge being you can sort of lock in your currency risk um unhedged you play with exchange rates and more recently if you've seen the australian dollar drop or well, your international losses haven't gone down by as much but now we're seeing if the australian dollar rises well you're not getting as many returns from your international exposure I mean, at Magellan, yeah. you've got sort of two plays. I know the, the the more broader strategy doesn't really have an exchange rate play or a currency play, whereas the mm-hmm. fund you manage, that takes, it takes a currency approach as well. Is that right?
1: It does, yeah. I, 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 maybe I wouldn't would characterize it as, as
0: playing with currency. Playing with currency, probably the right, exchange rate.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. We're, um, so, so, so I'll take a step back and explain the, the different product offerings at Magellan and whether they do or do not um, have currency hedging um, within them. So our global fund that you mentioned, which is the sort of broader product that you referenced, the sort of 25 stock portfolio, we offer that as a completely hedged or a completely unhedged unit class. Mm -hmm. So clients advise is they can sort of pick the degree of hedging. They could do 100, 0, 50, 50, whatever split they want between either the fully hedged or the unhedged. But then You're right, within our High Conviction um, strategy, we've got the High Conviction Fund and the High Conviction Trust. Both of those products have an active currency hedging program built into them. And we're not actually trying to drive any additional value from any of the currency decisions we're making. It's actually just trying to take some of the downside risk out of um, of those portfolios for Australian investors investing in these international businesses and all we try and do is just sort of recognize where the currency is um, today relative to our, you know, conservative uh, and rough estimate of where the fair value is um, for, let's say, the Aussie U.S. And if we're at a meaningful discount to what we think the fair value is, you know, we'll look to be pretty hedged mm-hmm. at that level. Yep. And as the currency is rising from that level where it is today back towards fair value, to your point, Stefan, you um, there are going to be headwinds to investors Aussie dollar returns from their equity portfolio. We want to offset that currency headwind with the gains that they'll receive from that hedge. Um, On the other hand, should the Aussie run through our estimate of fair value and increase to a very high level, we want to layer off the hedging and just sort of allow the hedging to roll off to Mm -hmm. a lower level. And, you know, such that, if the currency moves from that high level back towards fair value, investors are benefiting from that, from that, 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 uh, that, currency gain.
0: Yeah. That macroeconomic play I feel is so important when investing overseas because you get it wrong and you can really erode your returns or, or magnify even your losses. Um, so yeah, getting yeah. that right within the strategy, I think it's a, it's a big thing and people need to consider it more. If they are going to invest overseas, well, What's going to happen in the macroeconomic environment? I was, I was talking to my father not long ago. He bought some shares in the US. I think he bought them back in 2009. The Australian dollar was basically par for par with the US. Yeah. Um, great investment. Yeah. Yeah. So, the actually, the investment has dropped in value, but his return has gone up.
1: Okay.
0: So, he's like, oh, well, things aren't too bad. Um, <laughs> as a business, look, Magellan's a big company. You've got um, a lot of you guys there who are very clever, 30 analysts as well. Um, how much money do you do you manage
1: as a business? It depends on the day, at the moment the, the yeah. markets are moving around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think our last. I mean, I would encourage uh, the audience to just jump on the ASX and look at the last disclosure because the 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 exact number um, is escaping me at the moment. But I think it's roughly in the order of about in Aussie dollar terms about ninety billion. Mm-hmm. Um, dollars. And as you mentioned, that's split across our. Global equities strategy. You also mentioned earlier, Stefan we've got a listed infrastructure yep. strategy as well, mm-hmm. and then we also have a um, a domestic equities um, uh, strategy as well under the Airly Funds Management right. Um, okay. Yep. Brand. So there's Magellan Global, there's Magellan Infrastructure, and then there's Airly Australian uh, domestic investments.
0: Yeah. Okay. So ninety billion dollars is a lot. Is a lot of money to a lot of people. Um, keeps you guys on your toes and when markets move and change and coronavirus hits obviously fund managers like yourself you're forced to take action to prevent losses what did you do so march 2020 coronavirus hit um as a fund what did you guys do within your fund and your pool um yeah when that when that first sort of hit
1: yeah it's um it's it's such a good question and um i touched on it i sort of hinted at this earlier but i'll make the point again we we like we focus on absolute returns we also focus on capital preservation that's a core objective for our global portfolios is protecting clients capital in down markets mm-hmm. and of course we had a, a pretty uh, pretty severe drawdown back in march um and so if i take a step back I, I touched a couple of times in the conversation suggesting we restrict our universe to very high quality businesses yep. one of the other restrictions we apply to our universe is liquidity so we want very high quality, but also very liquid investments such that we can, if we think it's appropriate, uh, move out of those positions very quickly. And we tend not to do that very much. You know, we're, we're not traders, we're investors, but certain events happen, such as coronavirus, and you want to change the risk settings of a portfolio pretty dramatically. And that's what we did back in, in early March in the Global Fund and the high conviction portfolios. Um, you know, effectively in a night or two, we kind of moved from a mid single digit level of cash in the portfolios Um, and a couple of days later we were sitting in the global fund close to 17% cash in the high conviction strategy at sort of 25, 20 to 28% cash. Mm -hmm. So we have the ability to move even though we are managing, you know, we're very fortunate to manage a very large amount of clients' money, um, that insistence on liquidity means we can move and shift to a much more defensive posture like we did in March very quickly.
0: Okay, and then is that, does that come back to the old the old saying that cash is king? In term, when it's when it's a down market, gives you the great opportunity to buy great businesses at, at an even better valuation.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's part of the logic. I, I'd say the primary reason we're doing it is just to protect clients' capital, yep. and it, you yep. know there's there's a couple of tools available to do that, and cash is one of those tools. But it's also changing the composition of the equities within the portfolio as well. So maybe trimming some of the higher growth, higher beta, um, higher risk, cyclical investments towards more of your stable, steady, defensive uh, investments. So it's not just cash. Um, cash obviously does provide us a lot of optionality now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's, it's more than cash as well. There's things that we can do within the portfolio to add further defensiveness beyond just the cash. Yeah, yeah, there is. And it's, that's part of what you do when,
0: you, when you're running your own portfolio. And for anyone out there that might be trying to run their own portfolio, you've normally got a few different investments within there as well. But you don't have to just go to cash to create a defensive allocation. There's a lot more ways you can twe- tweak your portfolio to create your own defensiveness. Looking at where well, f- we're, we're filming this now, it's May 2020. There may be some green lights at the end of coronavirus. We're not sure. Um, but who do you think will benefit the most coming out of this whole COVID-19 issue? What sort of businesses do you feel will will
1: have the most upside in the future? Yeah, that is such, such an interesting question. Um, and strangely, and this might sound like confirmation bias, um, it, it's really reinforced the, um, the view and the conviction on some of the current investments that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of mentioned... Um, a couple of times earlier on, that you know, that the growth in cloud computing and digital advertising and digital payments, all those sort of things, we'd invested behind those um, those growth stories in those wonderful businesses um, without any sort of appreciation for something like coronavirus being around the corner. Yeah. Um, but what it has proved, um, and you know, the very nature of this conversation we're having now on Zoom or on Teams is, you know any business that has a meaningful online or digital presence has benefited enormously in this environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has sort of reinforced the trends that, you know, the view that we had that those trends were already in place and we expected to play out gradually over years, if not decades to come. There has been a very meaningful shift and acceleration in that trajectory for a lot of those businesses. And it is benefiting businesses like Microsoft. And Alibaba and Tencent over in uh, over in China, SAP. Um, so we're also trying to, you know, obviously doing the work on those, all those other businesses in our universe um, to find to, to try and identify some other great investments. Potentially, we can add to the portfolio. You know, we have mentioned we've got a lot of cash at the moment, so we could deploy into new great ideas as well. And we're certainly doing that work. But I'd also just sort of point out that. The portfolios have been very well positioned um, to benefit from this crisis without knowing this exact crisis was around the corner. It just has accelerated demand for so many of the businesses uh, in our portfolio during this period.
0: So you already love the businesses, but if we, if we were to say industries, obviously tech, cloud computing, it's just that, that fast drive towards the, the change that everyone knew was going to happen. It's it's now happened. Everyone's working from home. Yeah, hundred percent. Now, Chris, we call this show Investor Types because people, when they invest, they have different personalities. If you were to say someone came to you and said, "Look, I want to invest into international equities," what would you say? Is there would should there be their investor type or their personality to be successful in this kind of a strategy?
1: I'm not sure that a successful international investor would be any different from a successful domestic investor. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they do need to consider, you made a very good point earlier, they do need to consider currency because that is one extra additional um, dynamic that will influence their returns over time as an international investor. But I would even step back further than that and just say um, the mindset that they should have, whether they're investing domestically or internationally, is just as a long-term business owner. You know, When you are buying shares in these companies, you are buying a partial ownership interest in that business mm-hmm. and your returns over not the short term, because the share market can do all sorts of weird and wonderful things in the short term, yeah. but over the medium to long term, the returns that you are likely to earn from that investment will be very much tethered to the progress of that business. Mm-hmm. And you are a partial owner of that business. So uh whether you're investing domestically or internationally, I just encourage investors to step back and think about whether this is the sort of business that has the competitive prospects the management team, whether they understand the businesses, um, whether it sort of has the industry growth potential ahead of it. Um, that, that, that's something they really want to own for the next 5 to 10 years, not knowing in the short term how prices will move. That, that's completely unknowable. But um, maybe they should think about whether this is the sort of business that they would love to own for the next 5 to 10 years, assuming the share market was closed. Forget the share market. Yep. it just, just the sort of fundamental business that you would like, love to own. The next five, ten plus years. Perfect.
0: That's that's. There's a point, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So be focused on long term. Um, don't be don't be trying to trade too much. Um, be willing to own. Be a part of the company for the long term. See growth in that industry, and probably just have a have your eye out for where the exchange rate is or what the macroeconomic market is doing. Uh, that's it for the episode, Chris. Thank you so much for your time, mate. I know you're a busy man, so I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Pleasure,
0: Stephen. Thank you very much for having us. No, no dramas. And for all you out there, if you've got any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to us on, got um, some comments on YouTube. Otherwise, send an email to stephan at angeladvisory.com.au. Um, if you need to get in, have a look into Magellan, Magellan got a great website that um, indicate what all their products are. So we'll leave it there. Thank you all. I'll see you all very soon. Chris, thanks again, mate. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Investor Types podcast. What I want to remind you is that everything you heard in this podcast is general advice only. Please don't consider it as personal advice. If you do want to consider, consider it as being personal advice, please go and speak to your licensed financial planner. Everything here is just informational purposes only. Take it as you will. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon.